This little story we've just heard from the Gospel of John is one of the most touching and deeply moving and also provocative scenes in all of the Gospels. Mary of Bethany is seen once again at Jesus' feet. This time, she's pouring expensive perfume over them. And in what one can only imagine must have been a deeply intimate, perhaps even sensual gesture, she wipes them with her long, flowing hair. Now, In the other Gospels, this story, or one like it, is told slightly differently. In Matthew and Mark, the, this act of pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' feet is performed by an unnamed woman, often presumed to be Mary Magdalene. And in the Gospel of Luke, the story is told of a woman who was a sinner wiping Jesus' feet. But here in the Gospel of John, this person is neither unnamed nor is she referred to as a sinner. The story is set in the house of Jesus' close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it is Mary of Bethany, his very dear friend and close, close friend of Jesus, who performs this act of deep devotion. Now, no surprise, in a way, from the one who sat at Jesus' feet in a prior episode, you'll remember, while her sister protested her lack of attention to the domestic duties. Here, her devotion to Jesus takes on an even more exaggerated proportion, and definitely in keeping with the context of his impending death and burial. This act of pouring oil over his feet was a sign we should not miss on this fifth Sunday in Lent. Jesus' death is imminent. Suzanne Guthrie says this about this scene. Jesus announces publicly that Mary's extravagant gesture has a message in it. She brought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial, Jesus says. Did the others who were present there that day give any sign at all that they heard him? Had Peter already learned his lesson not to object to the references to Jesus' death? Embarrassed, did they awkwardly ignore him? Were they tired by now of his predictions of his passion? Mary heard him. A wordless dialogue then takes place. Mary, with her tear-filled eyes alone, seems to say, I know, I know. And Jesus, looking into her eyes, I know that you know. And then Mary, looking back, now I know that you know that I know. Love's deep silence surrounds their mutual understanding, a sphere unshattered by words. Only love and only prayer can enter the soul's darkness with such intimacy. But then this deeply moving scene is interrupted. Judas Iscariot is upset. We might imagine his interruption to be perhaps even out of embarrassment or in an attempt to safeguard Jesus' reputation, given that Mary is engaged in such intimate contact with him. But John tells us that Judas did so because he had a selfish interest in the value of this expensive oil. And he was growing impatient, watching it being poured out over Jesus' feet. 
Why was this perfume not sold, he asks, and the money given to the poor? But John's footnote makes it clear that this had nothing at all to do with Judas's generosity toward the poor, but because he was a down-and-dirty thief. And he was trying in this one panicked moment to use Jesus' concern for the poor for his own greedy purposes. Now Jesus comes back at him and he tells Judas just to leave Mary alone. Don't bother her, Judas. She has bought this oil for a very specific purpose, and that was to anoint him at his burial. And then we hear these words from Jesus. He says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now these words that Jesus speaks about the poor are familiar to us, are they not? And perhaps you've noticed that they get used in different ways. Some people quote Jesus here in order to justify not doing anything for the poor, as if to say, there are always going to be poor people anyway, so why waste our time and our efforts and our resources to try to change that? Others hear in these words a reason to persevere in helping the poor, because the fact that the poor are always with us means that we have no choice but to continue sharing what we have. Poor you have with you always. What are you and I to make of this? We're probably all familiar with figures indicating the percentage of the world's population that lives in extreme poverty, which is defined as living on less than $1.25 per person per day by the UN. In 1980, that figure was over 50% of the people in the world. And in the year 2000, that was down to about 30%, quite a big difference. That year, when the UN set its Millennium Development Goals, the number one goal was to cut extreme poverty in half by the year 2015. And to the great surprise of many people, the UN Development Program was actually able to announce in March of 2012 that this goal had actually been met three years ahead of schedule. And of course that means, however, that there are still hundreds of millions, actually billions of people still living in extreme poverty. So the work, of course, is not done. And that's only those living below the $1.25 per per person per day level, an amount that none of us here today can even begin to imagine trying to live on. So don't get too excited. The problem of poverty has not been solved. But the amazing thing is that there has been some measurable progress. And that's not something we're used to hearing, is it? And that progress raises the question whether Jesus' words will necessarily always be true. Is it possible that we can actually solve the world's poverty problems if we keep at it? Just last year, the UN celebrated the achievements of the previous 15 years and announced the establishment of new goals, the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. 
against which the world will now mark the continuation of progress that has been made. Well, helping the poor, as many in this parish do in so many ways, day in and day out, it can be gratifying work, yes, as you see someone who is hungry now have food that they would not otherwise have. It can also sometimes feel like a never-ending task. I see so many around here, patiently and persistently, day after day, week after week, month after month and year after year, making sandwiches or handing out food at the food bank, giving out vouchers to the thrift shop at our office window, doing many, many different kinds of things to care for the poor. And we sometimes ask ourselves questions like these. Will what I'm doing really help people to overcome poverty? Will it give them a bit of a leg up and increase their ability to find a way up and out? Or are we doing these things because we expect that those whom we help will always be poor, and we are at least helping to relieve for a brief moment in time the burden of their poverty? Economists and activists on behalf of the poor are increasingly asking questions about whether charity really helps at all, some even suggesting that it can be counterproductive when it comes to addressing the systemic causes of poverty. Are there not better ways to help people, like job creation and affordable housing and health care and things that give hope and enhance the dignity of those who are poor? These are debates that should interest and engage every one of us, and particularly those who, unlike Judas, really do want to help the poor. Now we can debate and even disagree on the methods for dealing with poverty, but we do not have an excuse not to care. By saying that we will always have the poor with us, Jesus was certainly not saying that we should not care for them. When he said these words, he was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, and it doesn't leave this fact one bit in question. It says there, for the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to the needy and to the poor. Now that might be a hand out or a hand up, but open wide our hands must be. Stanley Hauerwas is a well-known ethicist and theologian, and in a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he says this, the poor that we always have with us is Jesus. It is to the poor that all extravagance is to be given. It was in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus says, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of one of these, you have done it unto me. I believe that Harawas is reminding us that when we serve the poor, we, like Mary, pouring that expensive oil over Jesus' feet, are pouring out extravagant love on Jesus himself. We live in a world where it takes a lot of effort to ignore the harsh reality of poverty. That is true globally, with still well over half the world's population living at below $5 per person per day. And with growing inequality fueling the instability in our world and a refugee and immigration crisis like none that we have seen in our lifetimes. 
It's hard to ignore it even right here in our neighborhood, with long lines at our food bank, rising housing costs that are driving many further into poverty, and the lack of adequate investment in jobs and affordable housing. The poor, it seems painfully clear to us, are always going to be with us. Now, Mary had, brought, had bought this expensive oil for Jesus' burial. But instead of saving it for his burial, she begins to pour it out on him and wash his feet with it in this extravagant act of love and devotion, filling the house with its fragrance. Now, this may seem like a senseless act of passion, but this anointing of Jesus' feet presages another, more famous foot washing, which Jesus carries out for his disciples only a few days later at his Last Supper with them, a story that is told in the very next chapter of John's Gospel. That foot washing, in turn, is followed by Jesus' most important commandment, and that is, love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also should love one another. Now, Jesus might have said, love one another, just as Mary has loved me, and as I have loved you, you also should love one another. In John's telling of this story, Mary's anointing of Jesus begins a series of radical acts of hospitality and generosity, extending from Mary to Jesus, then from Jesus to his disciples, and finally in the commandment to love one another from those disciples back to the entire world. It sets in motion a cycle of love and service that become the life into which we are all called as followers of Jesus. Yes, it's true, the poor we have with us always. And yes, we are called to love and to serve, even the least of those among us. For when we do, we have loved and served Jesus himself. Love is one continuous action that begins with our love of God and flows toward all whom God has made, just like in that act of extravagant love when Mary poured from her extravagant heart of love onto the feet of Jesus.